to Women's Health, Wisdom, and Wine, a weekly conversation with practitioners, providers, patients, and healers about complex reproductive medicine and women's health challenges, the value of an integrative approach to these challenges, many of the women's health topics you're already thinking about but uncomfortable talking about, and my personal favorite, wine. I'm your host, Dr. Lorena White, an integrative reproductive medicine and women's health provider, licensed acupuncturist, clinical herbalist, and a former labor support doula in the Washington, D.C. metro area. My goal is to bring women's health-specific evidence and expertise to the forefront of daily women's health and wellness news through informative conversations. If you have ideas, questions, and specific topics that you would like us to cover in future podcast episodes, please leave them in the comment section or send us an email at info at To learn more about our team's approach to care, visit our website at www.larenawhite.com. As you enjoy the podcast, conversations, and wine time, remember to follow the podcast, leave a five-star rating, and tap on the bell to make sure you never miss an episode. Let us know what is your favorite topic, who has been your favorite guest, and who would you like to hear from on the next pod. Most importantly, share the podcast and your favorite episode with a friend or colleague. Lastly, remember that this podcast is not designed to be a substitute for a bona fide relationship with a licensed or certified healthcare professional. Coming up, I talk with Dr. Kimberly Frazier about how to navigate a confusing healthcare system, how to deal with constant yet unexpected demands, and how women, being the central pillar of our families and communities, process change, grief, and loss differently, and as such, need an additional layer of family caregiving support in order to avoid being overwhelmed by the burden of new and unexpected responsibilities. Let's join the conversation. Estimates suggest almost half of the adult population will someday be a caregiver, whether for an aging parent, an ailing partner, or a disabled family member. It is a role that tends to fall on people without warning and almost certainly without preparation or training. Even Dr. Kimberly Fraser, a nurse who ran a large home support business, found it a struggle when her father and husband needed increasing levels of care. So, Dr. Frazier, please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your personal family caregiving experience. Sure. Thanks very much for having me on your show, first of. And yes, I am a nurse researcher from Canada. Mm-hmm. I live uh, close to the Rocky Mountains, but grew up on the East Coast in Nova Scotia. Okay. And when I first went into nursing school, my dad developed MS and my mother quite quickly became his caregiver, had to retire early. Uh, I was first year in nursing school, as I said, at 18, and the youngest was 10. Mm. So had firsthand experience. And in retrospect, all of um, watching my mom care for my dad and, and the trajectory that they lived probably somehow led me to have a career in home care, elder care, and in particular family caregiving and helping people get the care and the supports that they need. Right. Then I went on to become a researcher and interviewed lots of family caregivers over the years. So, all right, that's a little bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a that's a nice like a nice lead in to my next question. So, in describing your experience, it seems like being a family caregiver 
can be a layered experience that is peppered with pressures and expectations and support gaps that also affect the caregiver. Talk to us about these aspects that are often overlooked or taken for granted. Well, I think sometimes we make a lot of assumptions, Mm -hmm. those of us who practice healthcare, whether we're a nurse, a physician, a physical therapist, um, we're so um, in tune with looking after our patient, our client, that we sometimes forget what's their life like outside of this experience with me, whether it's an acute care hospital, uh, a physician's office, a physio clinic, um, and we don't often think about, well, what's their life going to be like when they go home? Who's supporting them? What's going to be required to even something as simple as prescribing a medication four times a day when it could be taken twice a day Mm. can throw a whole um, trajectory into a family's life where they're trying to access care. If it's a working primary caregiver, they're trying to get someone to come into their home to perhaps give meds four times a day or mm-hmm. figure out a way how, how they can come home from lunch, those kinds of things. So things as simple as that can really affect a person's day-to-day life. Right. And I, I have always said to um, health professionals that I work with, what we do and me studying home care, case management, family caregiving, what I do, and I'm immersed in this topic, this concept or looking after folks, yeah. that is my life. Right. But our world is not their world. Yeah. Being ill, being infirm is not their life. They have family. They may have children. They have grandchildren. They may still be working. Mm. So we often see people having to get a little bit of care and support at work yeah. um, if they have particular conditions that don't necessarily um, bring them out of the workforce, but they need a lot of care and support. Perhaps they're um, you know, in a, in a wheelchair, or they have mobility supports. Um, so I just think we have to start to think a little bit more um, openly, uh, inclusively, recognizing that people have a whole life, yeah. and their condition and their needs shouldn't negatively impact their life so much that they can't live a reasonable quality of life. Yes, I think that's so very important. And I think there's all manners of ways that this can manifest and you know with COVID and things and people working from home and you know working from home taking care of children and potentially taking care of a infirm one at home whether that be a spouse or even a child or even you know a parent that can be so complicated and we don't think about all the different nuanced ways that the Mm -hmm. caregiver is also affected and so I relate in in ways in that my grandmother came to live with us while I was in college and my dad, being an only child, assumed responsibility for her care along with my mom. However, both of my parents worked outside the home and there came a point that even together they couldn't ensure that she was properly cared for. And my dad struggled with the decisions and what to do and and started, you know, being caretakers in our home, however, bringing caretakers into our home. However, my grandmother's needs were more than my parents could meet even together eventually. So talk to us about the role of the child or the spouse in the caretaking capacity and how they potentially are similar while simultaneously quite different. Right. Yeah. I think it depends where we're at in our own life trajectory. Um, Are we working? Are we going to school? Do what other uh, pressures do we have? In the case of uh, adults, 
taking care of and supporting uh, older adults, like their parent, perhaps an aging aunt or mm-hmm. uncle, or perhaps even a f- close family friend. We have friends looking after friends these days. Yeah. So I think the needs are very different for someone who is in the workforce with young children and caregiving responsibilities. And you're probably familiar with the sandwich generation. Yeah. And so we, we have that experience. We might have an experience where um, a, a child in high school or middle school is looking after a parent with um, an infirmity. Maybe they've had a stroke, for example, mm-hmm. and they're quite debilitated. They're getting home care. So we have um, children taking responsibilities. And it's a, a real thing now that we're recognizing. We have youth family caregivers who carry a tremendous burden of responsibility. So they have various needs. They need support to continue studying, to continue doing well in school. They'll go on to live a long, long life, probably far beyond their caregiving responsibilities. So we need to support them so they don't drop out of society and, and become isolated and can't see their way out. So it affects their quality of life. And we have older people looking after older people. I don't think we can forget the cohort of you know, much older people out of the workforce, retired, looking after a spouse or perhaps an adult child who developed a chronic disease or perhaps a developmental disability where we have older people um, who are becoming aged and frail Mm. looking after younger people. So we see all kinds of family caregivers. And I think I love your question because I think it would be a tremendous mistake if we as a society in North America, call a caregiver, a caregiver, a caregiver, because they're not, we need to recognize individual situations and differences to get people the proper support so they can continue caregiving. It's not something that's going to go away, right? but how can we help everybody as a society? Yes, absolutely. So, and while women are often thought of and considered natural caretakers and caregivers, just like you mentioned before, that's not always the case. And many women have been the central pillar of the family in terms of caretaking for their children, work, and then they assume the role for an ailing spouse, a parent, or an in-law. Talk to us about the grief and, and the change and recovery period for parent-turned-caretaker, especially for women. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we particularly see this in spousal caregiving mm-hmm. or when a parent's looking after a child that develops some kind of uh, illness or infirmity, or perhaps has had an accident and their health isn't what it used to be. Right. I think through uh, family caregiving, we're not only doing the physical to look after the other, but we are going through our own changes in terms of that um, grief and loss and coping with losing the person that was before. For example, if perhaps if it's a husband, um, things might not be the same. I have interviewed lots of female caregivers um, whose husbands had become ill and firm, whether or developed perhaps dementia, um, all kinds of situations. Um, and they talk about, this isn't the man I married. It's not my husband anymore. I'm now his nurse. Wow. I'm now his aide. Yeah. Um, and so they're grieving the loss of, of the, the one that they loved and their husband, plus taking on tremendous other responsibilities because now um, they're doing whatever role that the person who is ill 
has done before, they're taking it on, whether it's the banking, uh, home repairs. In the case of a husband, his wife becomes ill, taking over a lot of perhaps who knows who did all the cooking, but maybe Mm. there's more cooking. Maybe there's more childcare. Maybe it's a a young mom who develops MS and or ALS. I mean, we have so many chronic diseases facing younger adults that it puts very unique strains on families. Right. And I think while it's less mentioned, even things like endometriosis and cases where the endometriosis is so severe that it's debilitating, Mm -hmm. even not on the, you know, chronicity, but on a month to month basis. And it shows up in different ways and shapes and forms that, you know, sneak up on the person. Like it's not like, oh, we can count like, okay, when my period comes, this I'm going to be kind of out of commission so we can plan for it because endometriosis can, you know, endometriosis can show up at any time. There's that chronicity, but it's also, like you said, like a sneak attack all throughout the month. And then there's that realm that you may not even be able to identify or understand. And that is that other layer of just not knowing what to do, how to do it and how to be a good support or caregiver. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So as a person with a nursing background, what needs did you see that weren't being met? And how does your upcoming book, The Accidental Caregiver, Caretaker, Wisdom and Guidance for the Unexpected Challenges of Family Caregiving, highlight this unique perspective? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head in that oftentimes we're not prepared. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, certain chronic diseases uh, we know they might ebb and flow, whether it's endometriosis, um, rheumatoid arthritis, right. where we have flare-ups and we don't, we're, we're calm. We don't always have that ability to predict right. and that cycle of, and, and that is a real challenge. How do I get help when I need sporadic help? Most home care programs or support programs want to give someone some kind of regularity. Mm-hmm. For example, maybe two visits twice a week or... Right. Uh, two visits every day Mm -hmm. who knows but people don't want help that they don't need yes they don't want that is that is I think we have to really appreciate as great as home care programs are for example if someone is at home needing care as great as they are they wish more than anything they didn't need us right because we're only there because there's some sort of crisis so I think um that that's something that we often overlook as well as information needs. Again, we're busy health professionals. We're so busy in our own little groove, seeing individual clients. We don't help people plan very well. Mm. We give them information. If they're lucky, they get a pamphlet or told to check out something, but not even usually because people don't know often what they need, what they want. We don't have time to reflect and think, how is this new normal going to affect our life? Yeah. What is it going to be like? And what do I need to, to support my family, to support our life together and still have some level of normalcy? It might be a new thing, but it becomes new routines. So we overlook giving people appropriate information so that they can be engaged in the decision-making process and assess what is right for them. Um, and I think that's a huge gap. And sometimes when we're particularly in Canada, we have um, public home care programs. A lot of it is 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 covered by governments if 
you're eligible. Right. But we also have a tremendous amount of private home care where people can purchase what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are willing right. to purchase extra care if they need it. Whereas in the U.S., you're often looking at purchasing a lot of it yourself or tapping into your insurance. Yeah. Uh, if you're lucky enough to have um, a comprehensive insurance plan that would cover some home-based care. So we some, we just make, we make so many assumptions in healthcare and we're scared. I'll use that word scared that if we tell everybody all that we can offer, they'll want it all. They'll but no, it. they yeah. don't. <laughs> they do not want interference in their life. And having a home health aide or a nurse is that come into your yeah. home every day is an interference. And people talk a lot about the um, invasion of privacy. So I am an optimist, but I do believe if we give people and arm people with appropriate information, they make good choices and they will work with us. If they understand the limits of our programs and if they understand what they can access and we work together, I think in the end, more people will have what they need and perhaps our programs can be extended to cover more people because there are limits to any health system, whether it's private, public, not-for-profit, you name it, there's limits because there's limits to human resources and health human resources are becoming exceedingly scarce. So we have to find new ways to engage with people to make it work for the most people. Yes, absolutely. And as you you know talk about this, I heard you mention so many different poignant um, aspects and points. Why do you feel this book is so timely and urgently needed in this moment right now? Because we have people living longer, mm-hmm. um, notwithstanding the recent pandemic and <laughs> and what that exposed all over the world in terms of the care and support people need and the pressures on families. Right. Um, you know, but primarily we have a, a, a society that's aging and we think about the baby boom and different demographics. We have got so many more people living longer. And now we have the inverted triangle where it used to be uh, in the 60s, 70s, our largest cohort were children. Right. Now our largest cohort is going to be older people, yeah. 60 plus. And we're keeping people well a lot longer. Mm-hmm. But while we keep people well, we also have a cohort of people who aren't aging well Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And so therefore we just simply have more people with chronic illnesses, more people in that higher um, late 80 to 90 age bracket that need more supports. We have pressures on long-term care centers. We don't have enough. They're aging facilities that we used to have. And I think it's really important I mean, we have other options, which are fantastic, like supportive living or assisted living, where people can age in place. We've lots of new models, you know, coming along, but some of them are beyond reach if they're too expensive for a large cohort of people. Um, But there are options. And I think it's really important. And I can't remember the detail that I get into this. I think I do talk a little bit about this in my book, but choice is important. I come from home care. I think home care is fantastic. And we do assume in our society that people want to stay home as long as they can. They want to be in their own homes and they want to be independent. And as far as assumption goes, that's probably a reasonable one. Because if you ask most of us, yes, we want to be in our own home, our own apartment, even in assisted living where we have some semblance of, of independence. 
but it, that's not the right choice for everybody mm -hmm. or a family. And we're making decisions about where older people or people with severe chronic diseases or life-limiting diseases, where it is best for them to live and get support, whether that's um, long-term care, like a nursing home, or whether it's assisted living, or whether it's in home with the care and support of a large family yeah. or a small family. Um, I think it's really important that people have choice and appreciate that no decision is wrong. It's not bad to have to place your um, family member or family friend in long-term care. That mm -hmm. might be the best place for them. Right. And I think it's a decision that hopefully more of us get time to make that decision rather than someone ending up in hospital taking up a bed that we've started to call um, alternate level of care mm -hmm. or they're in the wrong place, uh, things like that, and try to get people moved out of hospital quickly. And so place them before we've given uh, thought to where is the best place for this person. Right. Um, because it's not bad to want to have your loved one at home and have more home care. It's not bad to choose long-term care in a facility. Yeah. It's the choice that's right for the family. And I think sometimes we um, we caregivers, we as a society, feel we failed someone mm -hmm. if they are placed. Right. And that's not necessarily so. It might be that best choice. Yeah. But family caregiving responsibilities also don't change because someone is in a facility or in assisted living where they get a bit of help. Family caregivers will tell us sometimes the responsibilities increase, increase. because they want to be there more. Yes. And so they're traveling <laughs> and they're overseeing care. Yeah. They're advocating for their loved one. They want to be involved in care, but because it's not in their home, there's a whole other dynamic yep. of travel that is involved. And when do I find time to get there? And how do we um, spread this out within the family so that perhaps grandkids are going sometimes, mm -hmm. um, a, a nephew's going sometimes, a brother, you know, so um, no care situation is wrong or inherently bad. Right. What is right for the family? And I just think we need a lot more time to talk about that. We need more healthy conversations. Yes, absolutely. As a society. And we also need to facilitate conversations between the family caregiver and the cared for. Mm. So who is the care recipient? Because sometimes, you know, there's that burden of guilt right. that comes in or people lose sight of their boundaries or they don't feel they set boundaries because again I think most often we defer to the patient mm -hmm. the person with the debilitating con condition yeah. and don't consider the needs of the caregiver and unhealthy conversations develop yes. we don't help people know how to talk to their physician know how to talk to their nurse know how to talk to their case manager so they just say yes to everything that's offered or anything that's suggested rather than feeling very comfortable saying that won't work for me mm -hmm. because xyz right. can we talk about something different yeah and again so many there's so many layers to this onion and really as we peel it back we're seeing that it's not just the dynamic of having the individual with the chronic illness in the home and, you know, rearranging the day-to-day -day activities. There's so many other layers. And again, at the center of this, we normally put it on the person with the illness, but there's someone who is taking on an extra added burden or an extra added um, roles and responsibilities that also upstarts the apple cart in such a way 
that just so many different you know resources and support systems have to be put into place in order for everyone to keep that wheel turning. So mm-hmm. without giving away too many details, in the book, you discuss where to find help, how to navigate a confusing healthcare system, how to deal with constant demands, and also how to keep one's own life from being overwhelmed by the new responsibilities. What is a key piece of sound, practical advice on how to meet with humanity and optimism, the bewildering array of challenges facing caregivers? Mm-hmm, that's a nice way to put it. Um <laughs> I I think um, we have to give people space to think about what can I give up in my life and still be healthy? And I use that word health in its broadest meaning, uh, quality of life, reasonably well, um, feeling happy and joyful inside. So what can I give up? But what do I need to keep? What do I need in my life um, in order to be that healthy human being who can continue to give and to care? Right. I I think that is so important to decide for yourself. Uh, For me, it might be a walk outside. Um, It might be my yoga, like do not stop Mm -hmm. yoga. (laughs) It might be taking yoga off the mat and continuing to practice deep breathing, even pay attention to the tension you're carrying in your body. Um, I think, think about what you need. Maybe for some people, it's a movie. Maybe movie going was a habit. They had to see you know, two new movies a month right. that made them feel joyful. They Maybe it's connecting with friends, having coffee. Maybe it is continuing to have a friend come over. Mm. Uh, for everybody, it's different. Yeah. Um, we talk a lot about self-care and take care of yourself. And that's something I talk about in my book. It's often very patronizing when we health professionals <laughs> say that to family caregivers or yeah. neighbor says, be sure you're taking care of yourself, Marge. Right. Um, when they're overwhelmed with their caregiving responsibilities. And I think a better way to say it is how can I help you take better care of yourself? What's one thing Mm. I could offer you that would change your life? Do you want to have coffee? Do you want me to bring you over a coffee and we can sit and have coffee? Yeah. Um, I think we have to stop using that term. Self-care is very important. Don't get me wrong, but I'm trying to use more the terminology around self-compassion. Yeah. Am I good to myself? Am I feeding my own self and my own body? So I, I think it's, I think the question that you asked about that bewilderment, the burden that we can feel, I think we have to start talking about that a lot more instead of just the flippant, make sure you take care of yourself. Yeah. I almost cringe when I hear that. And I know many family caregivers do. So um, think about what you need to stay well. Um, and what what you can give up because we can't dismiss the realities of the burden of care. Right. And I think it's wrong to try to say family caregiving is not a burden because it is. And it doesn't mean the person who's ill and needing exactly. you is causing that burden. Right. It just is. Yeah. And so we need to, what's the balance? Yeah. Um, and so one lady, uh, remember uh, a caregiver I interviewed, I just, she was a busy accountant mm-hmm. and her husband, I believe had uh, some kind of terminal cancer and it was, I, I it was affecting his mobility as well. Yeah. But you know, if, if set up property at home, he could be okay. And so she worked, she worked, went to part-time work instead of full-time, got a little bit of home care in. Um, had a little bit of challenges with that, but mostly it worked out well. But she said the big thing that she needed was to have a cup of tea with her little puppy dog, Echo, on her lap. Yeah. She said Echo was the puppy's name. He gave her and her husband 
um, just that little bit of pleasure and joy so she could remember to think about the joyful things in life. Yeah. In spite of this burden, life is still good. Mm -hmm. We still have moments of joy and happiness. Whether they're big or small, it doesn't matter. And so for her, she said, that's all I need. That's all I'm asking for is time for my tea and my little puppy on my lap. Yeah. And again, it's it's the simple things, especially when everything around you is seemingly very chaotic and mm -hmm. complex. And as you mentioned this anecdotal story, you talked to several people and had them tell their stories of their family caregiving experiences. So what were some surprising and maybe not some not so surprising themes that you discovered? Um, at the point that I came to write my book, um, I used to think nothing would surprise me that I, I heard a lot of stories um, I interviewed over 75 caregivers in one way, shape, or form over the years, but I'd worked with many family caregivers. I was um, an owner, director of a large home health care company. Um, we had thousands of clients over the years, and I thought, oh, I, I heard it all. Yeah. Um, but one thing I remember during my research that hit me was what I mentioned early in the program. Family caregiving, because I study it, I help people, it might be my life, mm. but it's not every individual who I interact with, every family caregiver, I'm not their life and family caregiving and, and living within this, always thinking about home care and how can I help people more? What would they need? Where do they get their information? They don't think about that all the time. They don't want to think about that all the time because caregiving is a, is a small aspect off their whole life. Right. Like I said, they might be thinking about their grandchild's Christmas concert or a wedding or what have you. So that really uh, struck me. And I started to talk to my, my staff or my colleagues about that, that don't forget, we're not their life. Yeah. Like we might go in and talk to them about caregiving and what they do. We're a tiny aspect of, of, uh, of their life. So it's almost a, a flip. Um, uh, people are resilient. That wasn't, that wasn't really surprising to me, but when I started to look at resilience, I, I think resilience is a concept that we need to talk about a lot more. And I think resilience and pointing out where caregivers are resilient is self-affirming. It's the thing that keeps giving back. Yeah. So once you realize how resilient you are and someone points out, well, gee, Maybe I, I never thought I was. I break down and cry every once in a while, or I just get so frustrated that, you know, I yelled at my caregiver and I, I shouldn't have done that. But when you point out that someone is resilient and why those situations happen, I think it's, um, it's self-fulfilling and it is a perpetual um, thing that keeps giving back because then it helps us realize, yes, I can cope. Yes, I am human when I break down or I mm -hmm. don't respond to somebody in a way I would like to. So I think realizing how resilient people are and talking about that right. and helping family caregivers realize where they're resilient, it helps us then build on a strengths-based approach to care. It helps them. And it, it doesn't need to be something a healthcare provider gives us, but it can if we can start talking to them about building on their strengths, fill in the puzzle where you either don't want to or don't feel able. Worry about finding supports for that. Do what you do well and get help with the other pieces and that's okay. So um, those, were, those were, I guess, a few 
aha moments. Yeah. Um, another surprising thing is um, that people still are suffering from a lack of information. Yeah. That is a tremendous problem. Even in this era of, of the internet and high-speed knowledge coming at us, helping people translate that and understand it and pick the pieces that are important to them, assess, uh, you know, us health professionals, we talk about evidence-based practice all the time. Right. It's a big thing. We get it. We get knowledge mobilization, knowledge utilization. We have to teach um, the average layperson how to assess information, how to know they're looking at um, really good resources. Right. And we have to teach people how to find information that can help them. Mm -hmm. It's overwhelming, whether that's using your computer and the internet or whether that's going to the library, whether that's understanding all of the supports that are available in your community yes. is really important. And so I was led, I have a companion book coming out mm -hmm. um, uh, kind of, I don't know what it'll be called yet, something like the Family Caregiver's Guide to Care, yeah. a care book, where they can start to build information. I, I think it'll be very um, helpful for people. Okay. It's user-friendly, but it's everything from care to mental health supports to local supports and resources to possibly nursing home to thinking about your will down the road. Mm -hmm. So a place where all of that information can be gathered and collected and you can actually do care planning. You can access different forms through my website and things like that right. too. And I hope to help people know how to use those things yeah. because, you know, we all know taking it out of our head and putting it on paper is very helpful because then we can worry about other things when it comes up. But sometimes we hear about things that we might need down the road, but we have such information overload. We can't we can't deal with it. So I'm hoping to help people recognize those seeds of good resources or information and just download it, take it, put it somewhere in your care book so that you can pull it up when you need it, whether that's two months, two years, 20 years, right. you'll, because we all think I heard something helpful, but I didn't pay attention because I didn't need it. Yeah. Well, I think the more we arm people with information and help them help themselves, I think it's just a healthy thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a nice companion resource to have because the planning component, because like you mentioned before, most of these incidents are coming up and they are unexpected and it can turn one's life and be simultaneously devastating, but also disruptive. And when there's previously established schedules and different routines, this now becomes something that not only were you not thinking about, but you didn't plan for. And so now there's financial resources that need to be reappropriated and just day-to-day -day schedules and day-to-day -day lives that need to be reappropriated. And I think that's a wonderful companion to have. So you don't have to think about thinking about it. You can just say, okay, now mm -hmm. we can start from someplace where at least we know what we're looking at versus, okay, something else came up. We didn't think about that either. So that's, that's a wonderful resource. With the book, you begin a much-needed societal conversation about family caregiving, including the acceptable levels of care and what that looks like, and what life also looks like in terms of quality of care, quality of life, and overall safety. How do you feel these themes tie into not only the the caregiving approach, but also the healthcare system as a whole? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a big one. Um, our health systems are in crises. They're over, they're over 
I, I don't know if overused is the right word, but they're definitely under-resourced. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, health human resources and shortages of health human resources is a real thing. Yeah. Um, in particular, um, I, I think a big factor is our shifting demographic. Yeah. So if we've got that inverted triangle where, you know, the younger working people aren't making up as much of the population as they used to, and we've got a lot more people needing care, whether you're older or not, we just have more chronic diseases in our society. We have less people perhaps choosing health care. Um, it's very expensive to go into medical school, nursing school. Yeah. Um, we need to think about how can we get more people into health care. Um, so I think simply our health human resource factor absolutely affects the health of our family caregivers, our patients, what's going to be required. Um, I hate to be point pointed dire picture, but that is one yeah. thing that concerns me. And the downshift of care mm-hmm. um, to lesser trained, lesser qualified people. Yeah. Um, I used to say, you know, I, I think in most home care programs, whether it's government run, private, not-for-profit, uh, the largest cohort of, of personnel out there are personal care aides or home health assistants mm-hmm. or some level of assistant, which is great and fine. And they're great for hands-on direct care, but they don't assess. Nope. They don't help families make decisions. They don't have that sophisticated knowledge base right. that, in my opinion, is super important when we're looking after people with complex chronic diseases. Yeah. And usually there's more than one condition. There's multiple medications Mm -hmm. and we need pharmacists uh, part of this equation. Um, I'm often when someone talks about, I need to go see my physician to talk about XYZ related to my meds. He said, why don't you try your pharmacist first? They might be able to help out and they have a direct line to your physician. So they might be able to help you problem solve. And so that you don't need to book an appointment with your physician just yet. And it could be a physician Um, that doesn't even know what other medications that you're taking, which is also dangerous. That's right. Because we have, you know, clientele and they come in with a medication list that are not just, you know, lines long, but pages long. And that's right. When did you start taking this? Why did you start taking this? Who prescribed this? And they're still taking it, but they don't remember why. But there's also about 10 to 12 other different medications. I'm like, well, this I don't think should be taken with this. And when did did they, did you get this approved kind of thing? And it's like, they're just taking medications on top of things. And sometimes they're canceling each other out. One is exponentiating the other. And it's really tough to, um, you know, manage that because Mm -hmm. I'm not, you're, you're coming to me and you've seen, you know, three or four other doctors before you got here, which means three or four layers of prescriptions. And Mm -hmm. I can't just step in and say, stop taking this and stop taking, because I wasn't the one who, you know, originally prescribed. And I think that's really yeah. good um, advice to talk to, a, you know, the pharmacist first, because they do have that overarching information and they can really do a deep dive mm-hmm. into some of those relationships. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you might be seeing two specialists. Yeah. Maybe you have a pulmonary condition and arthritis. Mm-hmm. You're not seeing the same specialist. Right. Um, and so that that's another issue with all of our, our, you know, comorbidities and people with multiple chronic conditions having to see different um, physicians, that's a real thing, but how do we coordinate the care, which gets Mm -hmm. back to the way we deliver health services and case managers. I know uh, both the US and Canada uses case management and managed care approaches. And that can be very helpful 
for folks. I mean, I think we need mechanisms to support people with multiple chronic diseases. So they're not trying to be their own case manager. Some people are sophisticated enough to be able to manage that, but it's tough even for, um, you know, I mean, my mom was a maternity nurse when my dad got MS. I was out, you know, 3000 miles away with a home health care company, knowing home health and community care and public health. That was my background. So just because my mom was a nurse, she didn't know all these moving pieces. No. Um, uh, You know, I've got friends that are physicians and they have their specialty and they'll be asking me about home and home care and, you know. And I, so when we talk about what amazes me, it still amazes me that I meet people on the street, <laughs> whether they're a healthcare provider or someone doing family caregiving or someone whose mom and dad or mom or dad just died. Yeah. And they say, I had no idea that this industry even existed, right. this kind of home help kind of field. Yeah. It's huge. I mean, we're certainly not as big as acute care. You don't see us, right. but we're out there. And so it makes me sad when people don't understand it. And and, you know, we can't blame our health professional mm-hmm. because they didn't know about another aspect of the health system. Yeah. The health system is huge. There is many moving parts. And so many different layers, so many different tiers, mm-hmm. so many different types of specialists. Yeah. And that doesn't just yeah. vary. You know, it could vary county to county, state to state, you know, all throughout yeah. the country. So what was going on in Maryland may not be going on in Texas. What was going on in California is probably not what's going on in Alabama. And now there were so many people making migrations to different parts of the country. That is another mm-hmm. layer of continuity of care that's still not being you know, that's being, it's falling in a gap. It's falling, you know, by the wayside because there's just no continuity of care. Yeah, absolutely. And no way for systems to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. I know most of us are moving towards, you know, electronic health records and things and patients and clients, we think, oh, gee, my family doc has access to um, everything at his or her fingertips. But that's not necessarily so because there's layers of access and layers of privacy. And so we still need to be responsible for our own healthcare and know what to tell our healthcare providers when we see them, because it's, it is a, you know, we've got a lot of fantastic people. I believe a lot of really good people, good health providers out there working in not so good systems or some systems with serious issues. Um, um, So yeah. And we're only as good as the systems we work within. And so it's it's complex. And that's why I really take a lot of joy in helping one individual. Right. That is great. Um, it's a lot easier than thinking, oh, how are we going to tackle this problem? I do a lot of policy work, a lot of policy advocacy right. for family caregiving and home care and the whole home health field. And like I said, you know, healthcare aides and the unregulated worker are the right worker in some situations. Right. But we still need the professional, the regulated professional needs to be engaged with helping problem solve, decision make, support the health worker and support the family. So, yeah, absolutely. What major falsehoods or myths or just general misinformation do you believe is circulating pertaining to family caregiving that you'd like to set straight? Uh, one thing out there is family caregivers, uh, the statistics are similar in most developed countries, but in Canada, uh, and even in my own province, um, family caregivers provide 
so much care that if our government had to provide what family caregivers mm. are, the Alberta statistic is it's close to $8 billion. Yes. I can believe that. So, so if we had to replace the work that family caregivers are doing, mm-hmm. our health systems would crumble. Would collapse. That's why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So that's why it is so important to help them. I am not for one minute yeah. saying family caregivers um, aren't the best person to provide the care that they're doing, right. but we need to support them. And because they are contributing to our healthcare dollars mm-hmm. and they directly influence healthcare resource allocation yeah. in a positive way, we are obligated to have systems and supports to support the family caregiver yeah. because our health system can't do it all. Maybe it's not appropriate that it does it all. Um, but it needs to be there again, getting back to doing the right things for the right people at the right time at the right cost, which gets at the right level of worker supporting the person. So we need social workers. Mm -hmm. We need therapists. We need doulas. Mm -hmm. We need coaches. We need midwives. Right. Um, You know, and we need them for lots of different situations. We need case managers who are well-trained, and we need to educate the public in terms of how this all works yeah. and where they can get what kind of help. So we're doing family caregivers a total disservice by not having appropriate programs and services to help them. Um, and that might be to help their mental health mm. because we see things fall apart for a family when the main primary caregiver gets ill and has to be hospitalized. Yeah. And sometimes it happens without warning. If it's elective surgery, we know we're going to be down and we can mm-hmm. put some things in place, right. but not when it's um, perhaps it's a chronic condition that exacerbates in the family caregiver. We're making people sick. Right. People are exhausted. Yeah. Um, and that's not right. Navigating the people healthcare system getting... in general is exhausting. Even when you're Absolutely. not, you know, having to deal with just, you know, deal with the basic healthcare issue, navigating the healthcare system is exhausting with the layers of insurance, with the layers of co-pays, with the layers of co-insurance, yes. just so many different levels. Navigating the healthcare system is not easy, even when you're healthy. No. So it's definitely more complicated yeah. when you add a chronic, a chronic condition or emergent care or a combination of the two. Absolutely. And that whole decision-making component to help people, uh, we need caregiver coaches. Yeah. And it's a term I started using um, and when I'm past president now, but was president of Alberta Caregivers, which is a group that looks after and supports family caregivers. Many states and provinces have a family caregiver organization. So that's one tip out there for any of you that are listening and you are family caregivers. Look up uh, family caregiver organizations in your province, your state, your local community. Right. They can be so helpful uh, as a starting point. Mm-hmm. But um as well as um, societies and organizations like the ALS Society, MS Society, uh, women's health organizations, often there might be a navigator or a coach that can give you a little bit of help and supports just to kind of get you going. But we, I think, you know, one of the things that as we are faced with, you know, so many chronic conditions and so on, help have people access that uh, a decision decision making coach, a healthcare coach, mm-hmm. who can help them sort through the myriad of choices that are out there. Right. I know, um, you know, I didn't have to look for help with my husband. There's a little line, and I keep trying to correct it. Um, I help my mom look for care for my 
dad, my husband developed um, prostate cancer Mm -hmm. um, about four years ago, three years ago. And I thought I knew a lot, but not so much, not when it affects us. And it's like, all these choices, all these treatment options, it had to be dealt with. Yeah. Um, and in a timely fashion, because time is of the essence when we're dealing with That's right. some of these conditions. And, yeah. And so I, I have an afterward, I wrote about my personal experience in the book. And it's like, oh my gosh, before this book even gets published, I'm faced with this. Mm. I am his support in the hospital. It was my job. I'm a nurse. So that falls to me naturally. Um, but he knows a lot too. He's, you know, relatively young and totally with it but he my job as the care as his caregiver he it was a very stressful time as it is with anybody diagnosed with the cancer word it does throw us for a loop even though there's so many treatments and we have so much hope when we have a cancer diagnosis now and we have every right to have that hope but when you hear that word and you're sorting through it's very scary I was the one that had to sift through the information he said you do that and tell me what I need to know Mm -hmm. and I would be able to assess that well I think you need to read this but I was the one that and I was a nurse so that was helpful but not every wife is a nurse or nor do you need to be a nurse to sort through that but sometimes sometimes being a a clinician and a nurse or a doctor sometimes serves to be a hindrance yes a detriment because you do know how the sausage is made you do know the intricacies and the things that are you know being you know written but not being said and it's like okay but I have to read between those lines and you know those those different layers are often complicated as well because you know you know sometimes knowledge is not just a blessing but it can also be a curse (laughs) absolutely and so I remember saying to our specialist Um, I'm a nurse and I'm a nurse researcher. I'm going home Mm -hmm. and I'm looking at everything, even evidence-based resources. I've got access (laughs) to the best libraries and data sets. So I said, please tell me what to look at. And so he was so helpful and told me, and I was so impressed with these sites on one hand that are for family caregivers and patients, but man, the information to understand, and I had to really study it. And since I've been able to help other friends understand their prostate cancer diagnosis and exactly what's going on, what their Gleason score means, a word I didn't even hear before. So um, when you go into the system, you're just faced with so much information. And I had resources to sort through it and I was overwhelmed. So another thing that made me think, we need to help people better Mm -hmm. through this myriad of decisions um, because there's just so much out there. And so- Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a lot to a big field. Through. Yeah, and you mentioned your companion care planning book, which I think is an excellent resource. Are there any additional supports or solutions or resources you should suggest for our listeners who are interested in learning more about family caregiving and their roles and the responsibilities? Like I mentioned, um, looking in your community, right. uh, if you just want to read about it, go to your library. There are lots of great books out there. If you're a internet user, many of us are these days, just search up family caregiving and look if, if you've got, if it's general, right. uh, knowledge that you want, that's helpful. Start thinking about it. Yeah. Start thinking about who in my life might I have to care for and support. We always can't predict that, mm-hmm. but one thing for sure I promise you, we're all going to be looking after 
one to three people in our lifetime, sometimes at the same time. Yeah. So get a little bit of knowledge now while you're not stressed out, out and in the thick of it, or whether it's when it's not uh, upon you right now, start to think about some things and maybe start to read about what will be expected of you as a family caregiver and be blessed, feel blessed that you might have somebody able to help you if you need the help. Yeah. So it's going to go both ways. Absolutely. And sometimes you might be the caregiver, sometimes the care receiver. Yeah. Um, so I think generally we can start thinking about this and how how we would like it to play out, who we might be looking after. And if you do become a family caregiver, who can support you? Yeah. My mom was my dad's primary caregiver. I wasn't dad's primary caregiver. I helped when I went home as much as I could all the time. Yeah but I supported my mom and I think my mom got a lot of support from us four children, but we supported the family caregiver. Now, whether that was sitting with dad for an afternoon or doing some of his physical care or feeding him when he became um, quite infirm, Mm -hmm. that's all great, but I wasn't the family caregiver. So try to understand the lives of the family caregivers, you know, and, and, you know, ask how you can help family caregivers as well. If you know a family caregiver, don't say, call me if you need any help. Mm -hmm. Say, hey, these are some of the things I can help you with. I'd love to make some meals for your freezer. Mm -hmm. You know, it depends again, what kind of a situation it is. If you're a grandchild and your mom is um, the one that's running around with your grandma or grandfather or aunt taking them to every appointment and every hospital. If you're um, you know, even 16 and have a driver's license up to in your 30s. Yeah. If you see your parent helping out even older um, family members, say, hey, I'll take Nana to the doctor today. Mom, I can help you with some of that yeah. stuff. We often don't think life goes on. We're all busy. No matter how old you are, there's lots going on out there. So ask yourself, how can I offer meaningful help to a family caregiver? And don't take that Call note them. for the answer because it's going to be like, oh, and- no, I, I'm okay. I can do this, yes. that type of thing. But then go that next layer. Okay, well, what do you need help with? Where, What is yeah. missing? What would you like mm-hmm. assistance with? Because maybe they don't want the 16-year-old, you know, driving the appointment because they don't know what questions to ask once they get exactly. to the appointment, but maybe they would just mm-hmm. want you to kind of go with them to the appointment or ride along because that means you can go park yeah. the car while I'm, you know, yeah. doing something else. So just continue Absolutely. to ask that next question until you do get an answer. Cause I find it is hard, Absolutely. even in those situations where you are burnout, overextended, overworked, overburdened, that it's still kind of hard to say, and recognize and acknowledge that you need help and that you can't do it all. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, even you could, if you, you had no idea where to start, just sit down and say, Hey, family caregiver friend, um, tell me about your day. Mm -hmm. What's your day like? Because I'm sure I can help, but I don't really understand what your day is like. And if it's a family caregiver who is in that, what I call um, that relentless family caregiving role the the initial title of my book was the accidental caregiver something about you know looking after intimate family caregivers because I believe there are those family caregivers who are in those very intimate relations whether it's like your family you had your grandma living with you and your dad was doing a lot of care Mm -hmm. in my case my mom was my dad's intimate family caregiver in that close it was her spouse very close quarters doing that relentless day in day out caregiving yeah. that's very different than someone who's taking 
grandma or mom to her doctor's appointments or to the hair appointment or getting groceries, that support. um, But I think the way we offer help and supports for intimate family caregivers in that relentless role is very different and their needs are different than many other types of caregiving. And so while they might not be able to get out of the home, it might be, can I come over and do some home cleaning today? Like, let me do the laundry. Let me change these beds. Um, Let me get groceries. Can I get your groceries for you? You know, make, can I come over? How about I bring, bring coffee Mm -hmm. and we have coffee. Yeah. Things are so Um, practical. And like you say, don't say no, don't take no for an answer. Yeah. These are so such practical things that in the big scheme of things don't sound like a lot. But when all the other heavy lifting is done, these little small items can really take some of that weight off of doing the other tasks that that nobody else can do. And I think those are small little items that will mean so much. So Mm -hmm. last question, Um, based on personal experience, prodigious research and extensive interviews, the accidental caregiver is an invaluable resource for everyone concerned for vulnerable people in their lives and communities. Dr. Frazier, are there any parting words of wisdom for our listeners? Um, I think just pay attention. Uh, my hope was to start a, a broader, more intentional conversation around this. Um, just pay attention. Get get uh, information yourself. But I guarantee you, I bet you there's very few listeners who aren't touched by family caregiving. You will know a family caregiver if you think about it. Yeah. Um, it's going to be here to stay and it's okay. There's, um, you know, challenges and triumphs. Yeah. Uh, people love to provide caregiving. It's not necessarily always a burden. Um, it can be a burden. We want to provide the care, but how we as a society and a health system support and help family, family caregivers is what will keep them going. And I, that's a responsibility that we bear. Yes. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Frazier, and we'll be seeing you soon. Well, thank you so much. I so appreciated uh, the conversation. Indeed. Okay, take care. Thanks for joining Women's Health Wisdom and Wine. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Think about one gem you can take away from this episode and apply it to your own life. Also, remember to follow us, review us, and give us five stars. Till we meet again, remember... Nourish your flourish.